Today on Peace Talks Radio, 40 years of peace between Native Americans and British settlers in the years after the first Thanksgiving, how it happened, and the story of the Native American chief who initiated the effort. It's a tribute to Massasoit's leadership that there was a a 40-year truce or there was a 40-year place of peace. We talk with Chris Eyre, the film director who was charged with bringing the story to television in the PBS series We Shall Remain. Also, two Native American scholars from today's Plymouth Plantation Museum who wonder if the treaty between Massasoit was more motivated by a need for military support than a desire for peace. Uh, Whether or not he was inclined to peace, we're not sure about that, you know. He was inclined to do the the best thing for his people at the time, which would have uh, secured their peace. Massasoit's Peace Pact with the Pilgrims, today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In 2009, I was watching the PBS television series We Shall Remain five parts on key moments in Native American history. The first episode opened with dramatized scenes of what's come to be known as the first Thanksgiving in Plymouth Colony, what would later become Massachusetts. Almost nothing is known about the most iconic feast in American history, not even the date. It happened most likely in the late summer of 1621 a little less than a year after the Wampanoag saw a small group of strangers land on their shores. Half these strangers, men, women, and children, had died of disease, hunger, or exposure in their first winter on the unforgiving edge of North America. But by the next summer, with the help of the Wampanoag, the pilgrims had taken a harvest sure to sustain the settlement through the next barren season and they meant to celebrate their faith that God had smiled on their endeavor. As the thanksgiving began, a group of Wampanoag men, led by their chief, Massasoit, entered the Plymouth settlement, not entirely sure of the reception they'd get. In 2010, I talked with the episode's director, Chris Eyre, who'd been charged with imagining what the feast might have looked like. Coincidentally, the night before we talked, he caught a rebroadcast of the episode on his local station. I saw on the website that historians have only been able to find about two lines of a reference even to First Thanksgiving. Isn't that incredible? How did you manage to shape your depiction of the event from that? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's amazing to me that there are only, you know, two lines of reference to the most historic patriotic dinner that this country has ever had, which is uh, the first Thanksgiving and the Thanksgivings after that. So, you know, there's not much to go on historically at all in terms of the first Thanksgiving. You know, there are a lot of depictions of it and, you know, cartoons and, and children's books, coloring books. But as far as the reality of it, you know, what is the reality of that? 
you know, we took the two lines and basically said, okay, out of this, we can, you know, extrapolate that there were indigenous foods, beans and uh, rice and uh, wild turkey, probably some deer. And, you know, there were, there was a, um, a menu made uh, through our historians and, and production. And um, then we just uh, started to build from, you know, what state was the, uh, the settlement in. So then it becomes very organic, almost like an acting workshop, you know, in which you get these actors together and you're directing and you have all the pieces and components. And, you know, you think, okay, do they sit down? Do some of them sit down? Do they stand around? You know, what's the mood? Uh, did the settlers try and formalize the situation? Is it, um, you know, real casual? Are they laughing? Are they interacting? Are the Indians offering their indigenous food? We came up with, with working with the actors and, and just kind of playing around with different ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, in, in your depiction of the Thanksgiving, it, it seems like anyone, Anglo or Native, who would be watching that, um, imagining and sharing a wish that the goodness and the sharing had lasted in our history, although it certainly did not. But was, was, was the hope of that moment a goal for you to depict finally, and particularly since you just watched it again recently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's my thinking exactly. I mean, when they come and, and shake hands and then they start to eat, you know, you're hoping that this is all going to be well and good. And, and so I think that's uh, where you start to know that, wait a minute, this can't last. And that's uh, where the drama lies. <laughs> For those who followed the pilgrims across the Atlantic, the first Thanksgiving would enter into national mythology, where it remains the bright opening chapter of the American creation story. For the Wampanoag and for Massasoit, the memory of that day would recede into darker places, shadowed by betrayal and loss. A clip from We Shall Remain and the episode After the Mayflower, directed by our guest Chris Eyre. Although the program began with a depiction of the first Thanksgiving, it's really the story of a Wampanoag chief who came to be known as Massasoit, who chose to cooperate with the pilgrims and form an alliance. He struck an agreement that some see as the first peace treaty between Native Americans and British settlers. Others call it a war alliance of convenience to both parties, who needed something the other offered for a time. We'll have more with We Shall Remain director Chris Eyre later, but first, from Plymouth Plantation in Plymouth, Massachusetts, we have on the line with us two Native American scholars of this period in history, Darius Coombs and Bob Charlebois. Welcome to you both. While we want to focus on Massasoit's alliance with the Plymouth Colony, what's important to say about the introduction of European settlers to this particular region in the years before 1620 and 1621, when Massasoit chose to engage them? Were there not several decades of contact prior to that? Darius Coombs? Yeah, and that's very important to mention because you think of 1620, and a lot of people think first people here, aside from Native people. Um, but we had people coming over minimum 100 years prior. There were Dutch people coming over, they're English, and they're uh, French. 
The first written recording of people coming was a man named um, Verosano who landed down in Rhode Island and traded with the Narragansett down there. But most likely there were people coming over long before that even. They didn't really care about the land. They wanted to do business. They wanted beaver pelts. They wanted otter pelts. And they also wanted people. And there were ships coming over, taking native people back over to Europe and um, teaching them their language, parts of their culture, then bring them back over as guides and interpreters. So land wasn't a big deal for them. Right, and so the difference in those earlier years is that uh, we're not talking about settlements per se. No, the big this made it a little favorable when the colonists landed here in 1620, because when they came, they brought women and children along, and there were the traders who didn't do a lot of nice stuff, you know. So, what made them the colonists better off for themselves is when they did bring um, women, their women and children, to, in a way, a friendlier right. type of people. Well, you could argue that Massasoit had many reasons to distrust or maybe even want to eliminate the settlers based on those experiences with the English in this region um, just in the time before the pilgrims landed uh, because of what you said. <clears throat> you know, they uh, were uh, abducting uh, some Native Americans, enslaving them, taking them back to Europe, bringing disease that decimated some tribes. That's Yeah, that's true. I'll handle this. This is Bob... Uh you know there was a there was a a big fork thrown into this whole thing too, and it was uh, disease. And it's uh, if you refer to the book about uh, guns, germs, and steel, which is uh, was a bestseller for for many months prior to uh, this particular settlement, the Plymouth settlement. Um, there were uh, about four years before that they came. There was an outbreak of. Uh, what appears to be the it almost matches it the bubonic plague and it started up in maine and it went down south in sort of a rayon of death if you will all the way through where boston is now down to the south coast of massachusetts and uh, it would it would have changed the uh canvas upon which everything was being painted there uh, it cut wampanoag country in two the survivors of that were on Cape Cod and in the islands, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, the Elizabeth Islands, and so forth, and in a little area south of Providence, Rhode Island. That area, which is where the Poconocet people live, that was Massasoit's people, uh, would have been in a particular quandary because in normal times they had enough uh, men in their warrior societies to balance out their opponents, uh, their their enemies to the west, it would have been the Narragansetts. They had parity in most, in in uh, in it, and it kept the peace in in normal times. But now they they had about one tenth of uh, the amount of men that they had had prior to that. So, and and as a result, uh, there were uh, forays. And rumors being made and so forth by the Narragansetts, they were going to come in and, and take uh, Massasoit's area. And he was looking for an ace to pull out of his pocket, if you will. And when he had heard that Europeans had arrived in Plymouth, he just uh, he was very happy. And uh, I think he thought, hmm, Europeans, big metal guns, let's make a let's make a deal here. So yeah. Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit more, but let me ask you to reflect a little bit on Massasoit. What is known about him as a tribal leader before this devastation that you just described when, incredibly, you know, nine out of ten of his people uh, were lost to these diseases? 
One reference book said he always was inclined to peace, even among his own race. Would you agree with that? And is there anything in his story that supports that before this encounter with the pilgrims? You know, there's not a whole lot known about Massasoit. There's, there, there are bits and pieces that are written about him. Massasoit was a revered leader amongst the Wampanoag people. Obviously he was, because he could summon the loyalty of so many communities around him. Politically, they operated in such a way that each uh, individual band or city or town, whatever you want to call it, was independent and was head, headed by a sachem. He was a very well-loved sachem, and it, was, it wasn't based on fear. It was based on love. Uh, so we know that about him. Uh, whether or not he was inclined to peace, we're not sure about that, you know. He was inclined to do the, uh, the best thing for his people at the time, which would have uh, secured their peace and their well-being. I don't know if he was uh, someone who was inclined towards uh, being uh, offensive militarily or anything of, of that sort, but uh, we don't know. We just don't know. You hear about Matt Slate being um, a great leader, a great sergeant, a great chief, and what people think right off the bat is, oh, he was a gr- great chief of all the Wampanoag people. At the time, you look at over 70 Wampanoag communities, and he, as far as we know, he was only a leader of one community, and that was Poconokit, which was located on the border of the Narragansett people. And as Bob was saying, the Narragansett, after the plague had happened, decided to start attacking Massoy's community and start taking over. So he was smart enough to come out here in the spring of 1621 to Plymouth Colony and make a war alliance. I wouldn't even call it a peace alliance. It was more or less like a war alliance with the colonists before a Narragansett chief most likely would have been Canonicus. So, so have that alliance going on to help fight off the Narragansett people. But there's no sign of him um, governing all 70 Wampanoag communities. He probably had influence, but there's no sign of him government having been the supreme sachem. Mm-hmm. So he started to observe this Plymouth community from the outskirts in the winter of 1620. Let's remind listeners what was the state of the Plymouth community when the Mayflower that brought them there sailed back to England in the winter of 1620. Well, they had landed. Well, they didn't, they didn't first land in what is called Plymouth today. That's one big thing people have to understand. They landed a place which is called East Ham down Cape Cod. It has always been a Wampanoag community called Nosset. And unfortunately for them, what had happened in 1614, there was a ship that came over which landed down there took seven Nosset as slaves. So when the colonists landed down there in 1620, they were scouting out the land, thinking about staying. But the Nosset came out to the beach and said, hey, hey, for one thing, we really don't get along with you guys because of slavery that's happened prior. And also, we live here. And there was a small skirmish going on at the beach at that time, and that's basically when they were forced out. And that's when they came down to um, what is called Plymouth today. We call it Patuxent, and that's always been the Wampanoag community located around here. So when they landed here, there was nobody around here at all. This whole area, as far as we know, was wiped out from that disease. Um, the nearest living native community was about 15 miles inland, a town which is called Middleborough today, and what we call Namaskit. And yeah, there were signs that Massoite knew about the people being out here. They would hear native people outside their village, or there's documents of that. Um, but the first time there was a native person going into the into the Pilgrim village was in, village was in March of 1621, and that's when um, actually a chief went into the village. It wasn't a Wampanoag chief; 
It was a chief from up in Maine. His name was Samoset. He came down earlier with a, um, a trade ship and was let loose pretty much. And Massillon, being a smart man, he wasn't dumb, said, Samoset, you're a leader. You're a sachem. You're a chief. You know how to speak English. You dealt with these people before. Why don't you go, you go into the, that village and see what's going on? And Samoset walked into the Plymouth Colony in March of 1621 with just a breechcloth on. When that's just um, like a summer dress. Um, and he told them what had happened, the plague that came through here, asking why they were here. They told him, they sat him down, they fed him, they gave him something to drink. And then he told him, well, I'm not from here, but I'm going to bring you a leader who is familiar with this area, who is from here. And that's when he ran back and told Massoit, all right, it was all right to come along. And that's when he brought himself and 60 of his men. Mm-hmm. But this was after a brutal winter for these colonists. Um, they lost a lot of people. Um, I understand something like, what, 15 of 19 women died? The numbers that we have indicate that uh, half of them perished. From from the original 102, it was exactly 51 that were left. And so the fact that they were in a weakened position, the fact that they had women and children, uh, this uh, all emboldened Massasoit not to see them as a threat and to encourage this encounter. I, I guess you could surmise that, but he also uh, was uh, looking for closure actually for an out on uh, his situation with the Narragansetts that was over that was an overwhelming factor I think he uh, he wanted to protect his people from the from being hegemonized if you will by the by the Narragansetts by by uh, usurping uh, his power and uh, he not only his power but uh, the safety of his people you know as it turned out it wasn't a rosy happy uh, the situation in which everybody sat around, uh, as we, you know, we we mentioned uh, nowadays, and you know, ate turkey or whatever, and uh, uh, this was a business agreement, and the colonists ne- felt they needed protection. They were in the new world, what they call the new world, and uh, they were in a foreign place. They didn't know what to make of these people. And uh, they needed security, as did as did the uh, Poconocet Wampanoags from the Narragansetts. The Nubian need Dumbo, one no go I do own. The king welcomes you here. Ka na na man, kwetatawa, wasame sasi ogi you. This is one of the very first of these treaty encounters that are going to become such an important part of Anglo-American relations with Indian peoples across the continent. We want to be at peace with you. We want you to promise that none of your people will harm any of our people. Uten, Kakantam, Kenya, let us agree then that if anyone unjustly attack you, then we will help you. And if anyone justly attack us, then you will help us. The treaty negotiation scene as presented in the PBS series We Shall Remain. Let me read the points of this agreement as recalled in a memoir written by William Bradford, who for many, many years was the governor of Plymouth Colony. It says, After friendly entertainment and some gifts given to him, the settlers made peace with him, 
which hath now continued this twenty-four years at the time of this writing, in these terms, number one, that neither he nor any of his should injure or do hurt to any of their people. Number two, that if any of his did any hurt to any of theirs, he should send the offender that they might punish him. Number three, that if anything were taken away from any of theirs, he should cause it to be restored, and that they should do the like to his. Number four, that if any did unjustly war against him, that they would aid him, and if any did war against them, he would aid them. Number five, that he should send to his neighbors confederates to certify them of this, that they might not wrong them, but might be likewise compromised in the conditions of peace. And number six, that when their men came to them, they should leave their bows and arrows behind them. Darius Coombs, what more do we know about the composing of this document that ended up standing for 40 years? That, it, it was composed um, in March of 1621, early when I was saying when um, Samoset went back to Poconoke and told Massoy it was all right to come along with his men, in which he did, and, and that was later on in March of 1621, came himself and his brother being Quatacuena and 60 other warriors, and that's when they sat down and made that very famous war treaty. I say I stress war treaty because it really wasn't a peace treaty. Um, you're talking about two different people totally, one thinking one side and the other thinking another, you know. Um, friendship is even a strong word to use back then. You hear that a lot. Languages were different. Cultures were different. It was barely, it was hard enough to understand each other than have be friends. But that's when that very famous treaty was established. And the biggest, you got the six points, and a lot of the points is um, leave your bows and arrows outside the village. Well, if you come to a native place, you leave your muskets outside. But the main point of the treaty was, um, if you go to war, I will help you out. And if I go to war, you help me out. Aside from that, we're going to keep separate lives. So one writer I read about this offered the opinion that seems similar to what you gentlemen are saying, that the two groups came together not because they necessarily valued peace or respect for each other that much as a concept, but because they saw cooperation as the only way to cater to their respective self-serving advantages. Yeah, they had landed for them during a good time for themselves. I tell you, if they had landed in 1615, it wouldn't have been anywhere around this area because that, that plague that started up in northern Maine that decimated the whole coastline all the way down to Rhode Island, they they would have tried to stop going all the way through Maine, but there's no way because those native communities living all up and down it. So for them, it was fortunate for them in 1620 landing when they did, but they didn't. They needed an ally because of what the traders had done prior, and Massasoit needed an ally because of the disease that happened. He did not want the Narragansetts taking over his area, um, nor did the colonists want other native people attacking them. We'll have more with our guests, Plymouth Plantation Native American scholars Darius Coombs and Bob Charlebois in a moment. Also more later with director Chris Eyre, who helped create several episodes in the PBS We Shall Remain series, including this one that focused on the story of Wampanoag Chief Massasoit and his 40-year alliance with the British settlers of Plymouth Colony. Was it a peace treaty or a war alliance? And does that distinction matter in parsing out this early effort at cooperation and tolerance? More after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with scores of episodes in our series at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're exploring a treaty agreement made in 1621 between Native American Chief Massasoit and the English settlers of Plymouth Plantation. Whether called a peace pact or a strategic alliance, the cooperation set forth in the agreement lasted about 40 years until after Massasoit's death. Our guests are Native American scholars Darius Coombs and Bob Charlebois, both speaking to us from Plymouth Plantation, an educational museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Later, we'll hear more from Native American film director Chris Eyre, who worked on several episodes of the 2009 PBS documentary series, We Shall Remain, including the episode called After the Mayflower, which featured the story of Massasoit. Let me ask Bob Charlebois, in the years following the 1621 agreement, how did the settlers end up aiding Massasoit and vice versa? Were there instances when the treaty was actually put into practice? There were a few, and it uh, it was uh, evident in those uh, instances where uh, where that occurred that the might of the English was shown. The uh, I mean, Massasoit was correct. You know, those the weapons were a very powerful tool to those unacquainted with them, and that would have been the native people here, and convincing them of, of the might of, uh, of the English, of the Europeans with their big metal weapons and so forth, when used in anger. Um, there had been uh, testing of the political waters between Canonicus, who was a Narragansett sachem, and another sachem of the Wampanoag who uh, lived in the uh, area around New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, his, uh, his name was Combatant. And uh, he had been dead set against uh, any uh, treaty with the English and to begin with. And uh, they had actually kidnapped Massasoit, were holding him. What eventually happened was that the English showed their military might and uh, killed and wounded a, a number of uh, people in a, a, one of the villages that it was opposed to uh, the treaty and so forth. And uh, they extracted not only the acknowledgement of their might, but also extracted an oath of fealty to the King of England. And that's one of the things that was was a little bit underhanded, actually, but uh, actually quite underhanded. The English, after showing uh, their military might on several occasions, would have uh, used that as a way to extract an oath of allegiance. They didn't, they didn't do that to Massasoit. Not, it, you don't see it anywhere in that six-point document. Uh, however, uh, they would have used it to anybody who was opposed, uh, with anybody who was opposed to that, uh, with that treaty. They later on could incorporate English common law. And that, that's a whole different can of worms there. Some tellings of this tale, though, do focus on a more peaceful relation uh, between Massasoit and the settlers. Uh, they talk about a personal bonds that were made uh, between Massasoit and Edward Winslow, Englishman who came to his aid when he was ill. 
what of these stories? The entire episode with Winslow is interesting because it's uh, it comes on the heels of uh, of some treachery by the person you probably know of as Squanto. Squanto was a Patuxet Wampanoag. He had been taken as a slave many, many years before, brought to England, um, became a, a fine uh, speaker of the English language, and uh, attained a degree of some degree of freedom and somehow uh, finagled a way to get back uh, to his homeland. And in the interim, of course, that plague had gone by, had come through and killed everybody he knew. He lived near the Manomet people when the pilgrims came here. He's viewed as being a treacherous person by modern-day Wampanoag people because of, not because he chose to deal with uh, Europeans, but it was the manner in which he did it. Uh, For instance, there was... uh, an instance early on in his dealings with the Manomet people who had survived the plague, he told them that they better deal with him. If they didn't deal with him, he knew where the pilgrims kept boxes of the plague underneath their houses, which is absolutely ridiculous. You know, that's silly. On another instance, he concocted a scheme whereby he told the pilgrims that at that very moment that Massasoit, and the Narragansetts, his enemy, the, the very people he made this alliance uh, to, to fend off, you know, that they were uh, creating a huge army and they were marching to Plymouth to wipe out the English. And that was overheard by Habermach. He sent his wife, apparently, running to uh, the area around Bristol, Rhode Island, Warren, Rhode Island, in that area where the Poconoket village was. It took her about two days to get there, and then she... Uh, she went in to Massasoit, and she asked him why this was going on. He, he was in an outrage because, it, obviously, it was a lie. It was a self-serving lie to, uh, to render uh, more, more influence and power to Squanto. He wanted Squanto to be executed, and the English protected him. And as such, he didn't talk to the English for a long time. And... We see this, or at least I see this, uh, this whole affair with Winslow where he comes into his village and he cures him of this disease and so forth as a sort of an icebreaker set up by by Massasoit because he realized that he needed uh, you know, a, a link to these people to keep his alliance going. So, Bob Charlebois, um, I want to be clear about your characterization of this moment when Massasoit uh, took ill. It, it sounded as if you were suggesting that it was a bit of a ruse somehow. This is open to conjecture. This is my cut on it. It could be a ruse. We don't know. We've, we've looked at it and uh, here as a group uh, at the, at the uh, Wampadog Indigenous Program. And if he had been sick with, say, something like the bubonic plague or something similar to that, he's not going to get well by just a little bit of honey, you know, uh, put on his tongue or something or some scraping of his tongue. I think in that story there's even a hint that Winslow himself says he'd never doctored anybody in his life. So Darius called it a war treaty. Um, Many characterizations of it have focused on it as a peace document. What do you think, if anything, is remarkable about the conditions that were negotiated between these two communities? You know, I mean, they're they're very – the six very basic points – as with all things in uh, 
uh, matters uh, political or diplomatic or something, you operate from it's, it's almost like a card game. You're you're operating from your strength, or I should say, a chess game rather. Your strength versus strength, and uh, I think Massasoit felt that his uh, liaison with the English or his relationship to the English would have uh, guaranteed the security of his people. I think that the English themselves, or the common common English person, probably felt the same. Did the negotiation of these points, though, lead to anything that wouldn't have happened otherwise, like uh, uh, integration of the cultures in any way or learning of each other, acceptance of each other that uh, might not have happened if it, uh, if it hadn't been uh, um, manufactured? I, I would have to say no, because you're talking about, like I was saying, two totally different cultures. If anything at all, this treaty was just a more or less like a war treaty. And when you, when you have treaties like that, you don't really have to be friends with the people. It's a business agreement, basically, and that's what it was. Uh, the, the pilgrims were in a, kind of a, a different lot. They, uh, uh, they didn't call themselves pilgrims, for one thing, but uh, they had separated from the, the Reformed Church, the Puritan Church, rather, uh, back in England and so forth, they were a very insular people. They wouldn't have been open to dealing with uh, with native people. They, uh, when you come here to Plymouth Plantation, you'll see a, a huge palisade around the whole thing, and it it, it makes one wonder. It's a food for thought item. Uh, why did they need it? They were obviously afraid of the unknown, and who wouldn't be? You know, um, they had come from thousands of miles away into a a, a, a very different. Uh, world, they were in a situation where they they needed native allies, they needed some protection from basically from the unknown. They had no idea what what awaited them out there, um, and that would would have been the driving force to that uh, that alliance. Massasoit, to be all un- honest with you, he was in a bind. He was in a bind more than the pilgrims were in a bind, actually. And as, as it turned out, you know, they uh, they were ascendant in the whole deal. They um, they they became the Massachusetts Bay Colony when coupled up together with the Puritan father, uh, fathers up in Boston and so forth. And right, well, their numbers swelled from three hundred to twenty thousand with the addition of those colonies, and the power balance started to to change, right? The British weren't as interested in keeping any peace or even entering into a war alliance. No, it, it, it was it was a moot point. It was it had outlived its purpose uh, and uh, it had far outlived its purpose. And uh, as such, they didn't need the, the Wampanoags. And if you look at the history from about 1620 to 1623 in three, uh, three very important years in the colony, you can see that Massasoit had gone from a position of desperation to one where he had uh, basically eliminated all of the native uh, enemies of his people, and he had a measure of security. And what happened was that he basically put himself and his people, uh, meaning uh, collectively all of the Wampanoag people, in a position to be the only one left for the, uh, the colonists to have to contend with, you know? Uh, and later colonists did not have any uh, any loyalty or feeling of gratitude to any native people, and that's I think that's sort of the lead up towards uh, King Philip's War. Yeah, you got the um, the first generation pretty much on both sides, 
in a way that pretty much tolerated each other. Tolerated and would probably be a good word to use for back then. But you had the second generation on both sides that really couldn't stand each other. More and more people coming over. More and more people were taking up land. One side believed in ownership of land and the other side didn't. And once you have that big, big difference in the way of thinking, eventually you're going to have war. And that's what basically happened in 1676. 1675, I should say. This is after Massasoit's death, his son, Philip. Well, Massasoit himself, he he led the Poconokets um, all the way up to 1660 until his death, yeah. And who took over leadership after him, how leadership was passed on was normally from father to son. So his oldest son took over being Warm Sutter. Europeans called him Alexander. What happened in 1662, they, the colonists invited... Alexander Wamsutter to come out to have a meeting, and which he did. He came to Plymouth Colony. They, he sat down, met with them about different policies. Um, gave him something. They gave him something to drink, something to eat. And after a while, he goes, "Well, I'm going to head back to Poconoke." He was with his men. He went back, and halfway back to Poconoke, he died. So, if you put two and two together, you pretty much get an idea what happened to him. Um, and who took over leadership? After um, Warm Sutter was his younger brother, met a comet. And what the Europeans called him was um, King Philip. See, what happened back then, if you're a person of high stature, like a chief, European name, people will give you names of high stature, so they'll call you a king. So they called him King Philip. And King Philip really wasn't hearing much of anything. He was pretty much fed up, you know. And still today, the King Philip's War is considered to be the bloodiest war per capita in New England. And that involved numerous nations around the people, around the area, going against the English. Right. Well, what feels like the take-home message to learn from considering this particular story in terms of peacemaking philosophy that could inform people who care about peacemaking? Well, personally, I don't think we should abandon the effort to make peace in the world. Um, I think it's important. I think I'd have to, I'd have to hang up... Uh, Hang my, hang up my cleats, so to speak. If I did, I felt that about that way. Uh, I felt it about that way. Um, but I think this is just another example of how wars are in the modern in modern times. You know, and probably from the time that you know, um, since since humans uh, were were waging war. You know, when they were throwing sticks and stones at each other, uh, they've always had uh, their interests at heart. You know, whether it was a carcass of an animal or, uh, you know, the furtherance of their people. And I think that that's what was going on here. I think we have to rise above that, though. I think human beings have to rise above that. And there has to be a trade-off somewhere where we say, if we really want peace, then we've got to make a concerted effort to to sit down, uh, as the Iroquois would say, under the tree of peace. And we talk, you know. What we're doing right now is very important. Uh, the dialogue is all important. The realistic dialogue and laying everything out on the table, I think that's more important than anything. Shows like this, for instance, I, I think are, are essential to understanding and, and uh, you know, telling the truth. And, and what's, what's so bad about the truth? We shouldn't be afraid of the truth. We should bring it out and, uh, and we can go from there. We can work on it, you know. It's like we were saying before we started this, we were talking about South Africa and about how... Uh, you know, after apartheid fell, they had reconciliation commissions and so forth. 
Boers and um, and Zulus would sit there, or Bantu rather people, and uh, talk about what they had done. And they may not have come away all huggy and kissy, but at least they uh, they had a good understanding, and they could put it behind them, and then go forth into the future. You know, so. Darius, what uh, is coming to mind for you as we come to a close on this? I think it's just understanding. It's um, pretty much the people that have been lied to so many years to the schools and how the, with the information that's been put out there. And if people can settle with the truth on what really happened and understand it, I think it will be a lot better for themselves. You know, there's nothing wrong with the truth. And that's what we do here at the museum. We put out the truth, and some of it's not pretty, and, you know, we don't sugarcoat it, but it's all how we put it out there. And, and, and most of our people who come here and visit us are very smart. They're college educated, and that's what they want to know. They've said to us, they've, they're tired of people, te- their teachers lying to them over the years. They, they really want to know what happened. And there's nothing wrong with that, and understanding what happened and go from there. So taking that truth, then, again, referring to this particular story, what is in the truth of this story that can be valuable to people who are maybe negotiating conflict resolution on any level uh, in these modern times? Um, it's a very, very complex subject, you know. What happened after King Philip's War? It's, it set the tone for so many other wars that happened in North America between Native people and Europeans. Um, and it was the model that was used, you know. So it, it was the model by which Europeans and later the United States went from from the East Coast to the Pacific. Make a treaty, break it, and it's sort of a two steps forward, one step back process, and they, they kept doing it back and forth and back and forth. Uh, I mean, whether you're looking at the... Uh, the history of the uh, the treaties with the Lo- the Lakota Nation, or uh, you know the wars against the Apaches or the Comanches in Texas, and uh, or the Shawnee, like which is which is an all and we shall remain, you know, and you know it's uh, it's it's got to be laid out there. It's got to be understood as to what happened, you know. That dialogue is all important. That's I'm a big dialogue guy. Bob Charlebois and Darius Coombs are both Native American scholars affiliated with the Plymouth Plantation Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, from where they spoke to us. In a moment, more on the Massasoit story with film director Chris Eyre when we return on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Back in a minute.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with scores of episodes in our series at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're focusing on this moment in history in 1621 when a Native American chief, Wampanoag leader Massasoit, came to terms with the nascent British colonists at Plymouth to cooperate with each other and protect each other. A six-point treaty lasted for 40 years before Massasoit's death and the subsequent outbreak of the bloody King Philip's War between the Native American tribes and the British that ultimately resulted in the deaths of some 600 colonists and as many as 3,000 Native Americans from war and disease. Cheyenne Arapaho film director Chris Eyre, known for his movies Smoke Signals and Skins and Skin Walkers, also directed several installments in the five-part PBS series We Shall Remain, which you can view, by the way, via a link on our website, peacetalksradio.com. I talked more with Chris about his telling of the tale of Massasoit in the series' first episode, After the Mayflower, which featured dramatic reenactments of the history paired with commentary from scholars of those times. There's a very clear sense that Massasoit understands the entire treaty as reciprocal. At the very end of the treaty, it says, if you do these things, then King James will esteem you his friend and ally. So it would make very good sense for the Indians to think this is an alliance. This is a meeting between friends. That was historian Jenny Hale Pulsifer, who interprets Massasoit's outreach as saying, we're the same people now. Uh, Plymouth Plantation native historian Darius Coombs, whom we spoke with earlier, might disagree with that, saying how different the cultures were, how they would never be the same people. He said at best they tolerated each other. Uh, Chris Eyre, without a written record of Massasoit's thinking, are we sort of destined to see it through either the hopeful or skeptical filter of a particular historian, do you think? I hope not. That's that's my my greatest hope, is that we embrace the gray areas uh, in our history, in that we don't, you know, demonize uh, what we don't understand or believe in, and that at the same, you know, time, we don't, um, you know, aren't so blind that we just uh, see only what we see and, and exalt that too. I mean, like I said, we shall remain, you know, not to get off the, the after the Mayflower with Massasoit, but, you know, in the case of Wes Studi's character in the Cherokee movie, he had always been taught that the character of Major Ridge was the villain to Cherokee people. And Wes commented to me that uh, he appreciated playing this character that was supposedly a villain because he never thinks of his characters as bad. He always plays them as good. And that goes for, you know, his role in Last of the Mohicans, which was uh, Magua, who was this, you know, complete terror in Last of the Mohicans. And I think that it's the same with Massasoit. It's the same with King Philip. It's the same with the, the settlers. I mean, the settlers, I'm sitting there watching the series last night. When these you know, ships are coming across the ocean and they land at Plymouth and people get out, they're not thinking, hey, we'd like to kill people. I mean, it's not that black and white. They're thinking they'd like a better life than what they left. And I always think to myself, you know, I don't know what the component is that that turns it into crimes of, of, of war. But, uh, 
it's just a, an interesting subject that I hope that we never stop asking the question and pondering um, what choices we would have made had we been in the same shoes. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to ask you specifically, what did you hope to leave the viewers with in your portrayal of Massasoit? I think you kind of answered it there, but can you apply specifically you know, with uh, this particular character, this sort of nuanced um, approach that it sounds like you were trying to apply to uh, all characters in this series? I mean, I what I try and do is apply, you know, the rock and the hard place allegory, which is, you know, whether you're a farmer in this country or whether you're a, um, you know, out of work uh, salesperson in this country, I try to apply the statement or the idea that it could happen to anyone and that we shouldn't be so quick with our judgments as to right and wrong. Sometimes there's circumstances. And in the case of uh, the American, Native American, you know, conflict that uh, happened then or that happens now, it's not driven by evil people, I don't think, all the time. It's driven by misinformation. It's driven by politics. It's driven by populace. It's driven by uh, money. But I don't think it's core is, you know, evil people or bad people. I think it's about people that are segregated and each group of people are trying to exist, trying to live, trying to get ahead. So, you know, when I'm portraying Massasoit or I'm portraying pilgrims in this case, if I get into the gray areas with representation of anybody, then I'm happy. If if the character comes out black or white, I think that that's too easy. And so, you know, with Massasoit, he was a gentleman who was caught between a rock and a hard place. He had some incredibly difficult decisions to make, such as a peace treaty, such as should he have done something to stop people in the very beginning. He was a man who made a lot of choices because of the shoes he was in. And I don't think it's fair to go back and say he made wrong or right choices he was somebody who was doing the best he could do given the circumstance and maybe the circumstance didn't allow for anything else at that time. Who knows? Have you always been an empathetic person? I think so. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, when I, when I design characters, I'm, I'm empathizing with, you know, the characters and, their conflicts. And, you know, if, if it's going to be committed to screen, uh, television or film, certainly this person is in a situation, a conflict that's worth being told. <laughs> Hopefully it is. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it is. Hopefully I haven't picked some, some characters that aren't, you know, worthy of, of stories in, in mass media. But, um, you know, I always empathize with the characters. I, anything I make, that's really the key as a storyteller, uh, for me, you know, they're, they're flesh and bone and that they're uh, in this situation that uh, they're trying to figure out. You've already disclaimed yourself as not a scholar, but I'm curious st- still about your take on um, this particular story uh, because of this debate about whether or not it really was a moment of peace to celebrate or reflect on. How do you feel about it as you sort of look back on the 40 years of sustained, if tenuous, peace that uh, Massasoit was able to 
along with certain leaders of the British colony, maintain? Uh, my take is that it's a tribute to Massasoit's um, leadership that there was a, a 40-year place of peace. Um, I think that's a tribute to his leadership. I mean, you know, we came down to this same conflict over and over and over again in the We Shall Remain series, which was, again, you know, I cite the Cherokee story uh, 200 years later in which the Cherokees were between a rock and a hard place. They were being forced from Georgia to Oklahoma, and there was no good choice. And the leadership of someone like Major Ridge, played by Wes Studi, moved his family and followers to Oklahoma before the onslaught of the Georgia militia and U.S. troops were committed to the Trail of Tears and to the death of thousands of Cherokees. So the question is, is was it progressive that he saw what was happening and as a leader, he actually moved the people he could before or was it more progressive to stay and fight with women and children at the expense of Cherokee lives? And those are the kind of questions that we can't quite answer. In the case of Massasoit, I mean, what was the alternative? That he um, start, you know, killing settlers, I guess. I don't know what the alternative is, you know. For you, after working on this film and for viewers after watching it, what, what do you think is the value in contemplating these fleeting moments of peace and cooperation, however tentative or, or even self-serving, as some of the historians would say, that they might have been? These, these moments are all uh, pieces of our past as Americans that we need to uh, not forget uh, in order to go forward. I mean, when we talk about, you know, things like immigration and we talk about um, uh, the war in Afghanistan and uh, we talk about uh, the Middle East, uh, these are all important growing pains that this country's gone through that we need to better understand and um, make sure that uh, we continue, you know, as America in a good way, as the greatest country in the world. And I think that that's the only way that we can uh, do so is to look at um, our history and actually own the history that we've uh, been a part of, which we quite... Uh, to this point, we quite haven't done. But, um, you know, these are important lessons that we look at and we say, hey, you know, we've been here before. <laughs> you know, in the case of Massasoit and King Philip, I mean, I just had no idea about the Northeastern Indians and how the touchstone of Plymouth, you know, set off the expansion and manifest destiny of the entire continent. And so, you know, to be able to immerse myself in that for, you know, a long period of time, almost a year, it was just uh, amazing to me. It, it was like uh, an epiphany in terms of, okay, this is where it all started. I read that you had half a dozen consultants on site as you shot. Now, was processing this discussion ever a challenge in settling on a portrayal in the film? You know, I mean, for my part as as the director... I'm more interested in terms of um, character study and trying to make Massasoit. In this case, it was a, a gentleman, uh, Marcos Ackerman, who played Massasoit. And Marcos unfortunately passed away about a month ago. 
last night I watched the series again. Well, actually, the first of uh, the five-part series, which is uh, after the Mayflower, and uh, you know, kind of raised my hand up to uh, Marcos Ackerman for portraying Massasoit so beautifully. And when I say beautifully, for me, that means that he's creating a three-dimensional person. Well, to honor his effort on this film, tell me more about the casting of him and your work with him. Well, that's that's a nice that's a nice uh, nice question. Um, you know, I met Marcos uh, Ackerman, who was a, a great actor. You can look him up online. And at the time, Marcos was fifty nine years old. And if you look at the uh, physicality of this uh, wonderful actor and person, uh, you would never suspect that this gentleman's almost 60 years old. He's such a, uh, a, a beautiful person uh, in his laugh and his smile. And when you see certain scenes where they're doing the, um, the uh, shell game where they're uh, teaching um, one of the uh, Plymouth settlers how to play, oh. Marcos is sitting there laughing. <laughs> And you see this smile and you see this brightness and, you know, he's he's giving the conjecture to, you know, the first Thanksgiving in that we always think of it as this this kind of oppressive thing. But in reality, I think we all know that it was a celebration and that it wasn't wrought with the politics that we have now. And Marcos uh, in that scene and in other scenes really just embodies uh, the spirit of what I love about movies, which is the conjecture of the possibilities uh, in that human, you know, human being. (laughs) Film director Chris Ayer. You can hear complete interviews with all of our guests on today's program, as well as read partial transcripts, and hear the entire program again at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also link to the We Shall Remain episodes from our site. And you can get to all the programs in our series dating back to 2003. Also at the website, you can order CDs, sign up for a free podcast and monthly newsletter, and importantly, find out how you can keep this particular program on the air by making a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces the show. Your dollars really do make a difference. Find out more about doing your part at peacetalksradio.com. You can also find us on Facebook just by searching Peace Talks Radio. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, AMP Concerts, Albuquerque's roving concert series at ampconcerts.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.